Welcome to the Natural Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Join us as we interview expert clinicians, researchers and well-being experts from around the world and explore the evidence and application of complementary medicine in global healthcare. The following podcast is intended as professional information for integrated practitioners and as such must not be taken as medical advice. Patients are expressly directed to seek appropriate care from a suitably qualified practitioner. Hi everyone, thanks so much for your company today and welcome back to another episode of the Natural Medicine Podcast. Today we're going to be learning a heck of a lot from my dear friend, Dr. Denise Finesse, about how diet interacts and influences our genetics and overall health. And also we'll be introducing Denise's Whole Food Challenge. Welcome to Natural Medicine Podcast, Denise. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Very happy to be here. Absolutely overjoyed to have you on the show, I must say. It's been a long time between, I'd love to say drinks, but... Podcasts. Water. Water. Cheers. um, Now, I think for our listeners, our viewers, can you just take us through a little bit of your history? Because you have done a heck of a lot in your career so far. Yeah. So uh, the beginning, if I started the beginning, I initially started my career as a scientist. So I spent 10 or 12 years, to be exact, working as a research scientist or studying and then becoming a research scientist. And my PhD was in an area, nutrigenomics, as you mentioned. So that's really looking at the interaction between our diet and our genes. And specifically, I was focused on that methylation pathway. So looking at a number of SNPs involved in methylation, as well as folate, homocysteine, Bs, Uh, as well as not just the nutrigenomic aspect, but also the epigenetic side. So looking at methyl groups sitting on the DNA. And that was in relation to initially late pregnancy complications. And then I went in to do a postdoctoral fellowship. I got an NHMRC postdoctoral fellowship in obstetrics, gynecology, and then moved more into fertility and um, more early pregnancy complications and worked in a recurrent miscarriage clinic. And then from there, you know, we had a lot of success in that recurrent miscarriage clinic, about an 80% success rate. And I thought, wow, you know, this needs to get out to the world because we were doing this at a research sense, even though it was in a public hospital and we were doing all the genetic testing. And and mind you, it wasn't just me, of course, it was a team of people and obstetricians and sonographers, but great results. And ACNAM that you know all about, you're on the board of, I've been presenting at ACNAM since the very first conference because they were connected to CSRO Human Nutrition, where I did my PhD. And long story short, I was sort of, you know, transitioning from research, thinking about going out to clinical practice. And I put it to the people at the conference. I was presenting some research. And I said, what do you think about doing this in clinical practice? You know, doing this DNA testing, linking it with diet and health. And little did I know three of the sponsors at the conference were genetic testing companies doing nutrigenomics. So it's funny when you're in research, you're in this bubble and you don't actually realize it's going on in the world. And that was back in 2012. Um, And then I moved into clinical practice working at a clinic, Your Health in Melbourne, with some amazing integrative doctors. And then from there, did a bit of nutrition studies, also had my own autoimmune journey. And yeah, I've now been working in clinical practice, integrative medicine for 10 years. Um, 
Now, you've mentioned methylation. You and I have spoken about this, and and as we know, it's part of a much larger puzzle, but it's just one process which influences genes, the best known, of course. But tell us a little bit about methylation, because I still get this sense that people think methylation is to activate something, it, but it's not. It's to suppress something, correct? 100% right. So when we think about methylation, Often people think if you have some understanding, perhaps if the practitioners are, are listening, often we think about that pathway and, you know, genes like MTHFR. But yes, there's that methylation cycle pathway, but the process of methylation for all the listeners is, is a fundamental process that happens in the body. But part, one of the one of the influences, if I, if I say fundamental process, I could go down so many pathways there as in, you know, metabolizing stress hormones and, you know, estrogen energy. But if we're talking about gene expression, which is what I think you're getting to when you're talking about activation, mm -hmm. genetically what methylation does is suppress gene expression. So think of methylation when we're thinking about the epigenetic or the genetic side, because it does a few things in the body. If we're thinking about the genetics, methylation turns genes off. Okay. So now you've sparked my interest, of course, genomically. So genomically, if we were, say, talking about methylation, that's when we start to think about things like MTHFR. And it's not just MTHFR. There's MTHFD1, which we incorporated in our research, MTR, MTR. So there are a number of genes. And what they do is they use folate. Folate helps donate these methyl groups. And these genes, think about this metabolic pathway, passing these methyl groups around. And then by doing that, there are certain outcomes. For example, that methylation process, we are making certain you know, products, amino acids, we're converting homocysteine to methionine. But importantly too, we're also making one of the DNA bases. If you think about genomics and genetics, DNA is made up of four bases. So adenine, thymine, guanine, cytosine. Thymine is actually... I won't say made of methylation, but requires methylation. That's a better way to articulate it. Mm -hmm. So we have uracil in our RNA. RNA, yep. Yes. And then you actually have to add a methyl group, stick a methyl group onto uracil to make thymine. And that is actually oh. done through that methylation pathway. So when we talk about folate being so important for DNA synthesis and thinking about, you know, development, you know, when we have to have folate early stage of pregnancy, but it's not just about having folate to support DNA synthesis in pregnancy. Our cells are constantly replicating, you know, our skin cells mm. every day, you know, we're, our, our liver is always regenerating. So folate's absolutely essential for that DNA synthesis. And then there's sort of the other side of the pathway where I mentioned that homocysteine, you know, metabolizing that, making methionine, and then making what's known as S-adenosyl methionine. And that's all those other reactions you know methylation reactions in the body what about these uh you know methylation snips that we so commonly hear about um can we address them solely with food or do you think there is a case with some or at least one of them for supplementation mm -hmm. So I guess if people are just happen to be listening and think, you know, what are SNPs? So we're talking about these genes. We've kind of jumped in headfirst into this sort of complicated pathway. But just to sort of step back when we're thinking about genetics, 
we inherit our genes from our mum and our dad. And sometimes there are slight variations and that can mean that genes might, you know, be faster or slower or, you know, function at a, at a better rate, if I could say it like that. It's not often that simple, but there can be these variations that influence how well they function. So MTHFR is something that most people, if you're interested in this area, know about because we've had research on that since the 1990s, you know, particularly in relation to homocysteine that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. So there is a common genetic variation at position 677 within that MTHFR gene. And some people have a C, that's sort of the, the more common, the wild type, and that's associated with normal function. If people have a T, so we're thinking about that A, T, C, and G, the DNA bases. If you inherit a T, particularly a TT, one from mum and dad, that slows the MTHFR gene down by possibly somewhere between 60 to 70%. You know, some people say 70%, but in all honesty, it's somewhere between 60 to 70%. But that's a, a massive reduction in enzyme activity. So there is a school of thought that if you're slowing down an enzyme that much and it's really important for folate metabolism, we then need to supplement with folate. But the reality is you don't have to supplement with folate because if you just think about food, folate is found in tons of food. Green leafy vegetables that most people know, liver, not that many people eat liver these days, so it seems to be coming a bit more popular. But, you know, our greens, legumes, tons in lentils, nuts and seeds, citrus fruits, oranges, avocado, you know, folate's actually found in a lot of food. So if you're eating real food as nature intended, how we evolved over millions of years with this food around us, you actually are getting a lot of folate in the diet. The concerns are with folate these days, particularly with the leafy greens and the broccoli and things, uh, that sometimes they can be overcooked. That might break the, the folate down so you're not getting the folate. So folate is heat and light sensitive. So if you've you know, got some spinach or broccoli or something sitting in the supermarket and it's been picked quite a while ago and under the lights, the reality is that nutrient, and that's not just folate, you know, the, the nutrient content is compromised. But the reality yep. is if you're eating, you know, lots of whole foods, lots of legumes, you're getting a lot of folate. And the only time I would say someone has to supplement um, really is in that preconception time because we do know that increased need, again, talking about neural tube defects and, you know, in my research, we showed that even low folate at 20 weeks was an issue with pregnancy complications. So supplementing preconception and throughout, but that's a time when the demands for nutrients increase significantly. I would say to anyone else that's not pregnant or trying to get pregnant, you don't have to supplement unless perhaps you have a major digestive issue. And that's not just about folate. You might need other nutrients or you know, it, it, it comes down to the individual, but as a blanket rule, not everyone needs to supplement. That's, that's yeah. crazy. It, it To me, it doesn't make evolutionary sense that those people have carried on a 677T double allele. Um, did I say that correctly? Um, you did, you did uh, yep, double allele, yep. Um, it doesn't make evolutionary sense because it would have been wiped out if it required supplementation. So therefore, humans have survived with diet. Yes, there are numerous complications with a healthy diet these days, and the number of people that eat a healthy diet um, 
And of course, therein lies the issue. If they're not eating a healthy diet, diet's the issue. Hundred <laughs> percent, and that's what it is. Actually, it, that's if you think about genetics. For anyone that's done DNA testing, um, or even if you haven't, I, I would like people to know there's nothing wrong with your DNA in the sense that, yes, we have these genetic variations and some of us might need more folate. Some of us might be more sensitive to chemicals and toxins. Some of us might not metabolize stress hormones as efficiently and might, you know, become a bit more anxious, overwhelmed. You know, we're all a little bit different genetically, but the reality is that it's our environment that has changed so much because we adapted over millions and millions and millions of years to live in harmony with our environment. And we're used to living a completely different lifestyle. We weren't exposed to so many toxins. We mm. were eating real food. We had to go and hunt that food. You had to grow it. You know, you were more physically active, whereas life has changed so much. And genetically, we have not evolved that quickly. If you think about it, really, it's the last 50, if not 100 years, you know, and it can take a very, very long time to have these genetic variations. And if I was just to give an example of how genetics sort of coincides or, you know, we, we adapt to our environment, if we think about dairy. So initially we weren't able to metabolize lactose in adulthood. Lactose. Yeah. Yes. So what's known as lactase persistence. So when we're born, we can metabolize lactose. Our first food is milk. Um, but then after we wean, usually by the age of two, we're not able to produce that that lactase, the enzyme that breaks down milk sugar. But what happened um, a very, very long time ago, mainly in, in Northern Europe, uh, when they started domesticating cattle, then there was this you know genetic variation that allowed for this lactase persistence so that lactase is being produced in the MCM6 gene. So there's been a genetic variation and we can kind of, you know, go back and see where these, you know, DNA changes um, happened and around about the certain times when they're sort of doing all this, you know, forensics and things like that. So there was this change that allowed Northern Europeans to tolerate, you know, dairy and milk because they started introducing this to their diet. And we know that um, some populations, you know, in certain parts of Asia, most of Africa, they mm. can't tolerate, you know, the the dairy. They can't actually metabolize lactose. They don't have that genetic SNP that means they're going to keep making that lactase. Does that make sense? I already know that mm. you know that, but do you think I explained that well? Because yeah. Please yeah, step yeah. in if you, yeah. No, 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 that's fine. That, um, uh, uh, there's a whole nother podcast here about evolution, but but I wonder if given time, and here's the hurdle with our hurried society, but I wonder if given time, if humans might be able to evolve, to be able to handle um, these uh, common culprits, if you like, of food sensitivities that we're seeing. Um, mm. But there's, a, you know, there's thousands of years of discomfort until one a species evolves to handle, you know, a certain yeah. thing, like for instance, you know, the lactose and the weed tissues and vitamin C, for instance, with that gene, I can't remember the gene in yes. um, primates and certain birds, blah, blah, blah. That they but have any, that's a, that's a rabbit C. hole. Well, I have to tell you, uh, we won't go down that because you and I could keep chatting, but I also <laughs> wonder about the chem, you know, some people are quite sensitive to certain chemicals and toxins or it's more to do with the load 
you know, they might get rashes, yep. they might get hay fever. And I do wonder if in time there we will be able to tolerate more of these chemicals in our environment, sort of upregulate or there be a, a genetic, you know, change and adaptation, a variation, a SNP that means all of a sudden these phase two detox enzymes are just working, you know, on overdrive or whatever it may be so that we can tolerate our environment a little better. Uh, I do have to ask you quickly, though, uh, and it was an issue, an ethical issue, really, that you faced early on or within your research, I think it was, when you were talking about um, methylation, it was to do with a lady who was so concerned because she received the results of a test and she wanted to abort her pregnancy. Mm, Can you yes. take us through the danger here of our messages with genomic, genomic genetic testing? Mm. So when I was working in the public hospital and we were doing all this testing, we used to use, you know, different language, particularly mutation. That was just common. That's what you said. You've got the MTHFR mutation, you know, you've got these things and you don't realise what that can do to someone mentally. And we had a particular um, patient who had had one of our highest rates of miscarriages, 16 miscarriages, and she'd got pregnant. And then she came to me and was, was, you know, crying and said, well, I know I've got this MTHFR mutation. What happens if I have a girl and I pass it on? And then she has all of these fertility issues. And I said to her, oh my goodness, please don't think that was the cause of all of your miscarriages. Yes. You know, we look for that because my supervisor, who was an amazing obstetrician, he'd come out, he'd been sort of headhunted from the Netherlands. He initially was doing work in preeclampsia and had seen that MTHFR was strongly associated, which makes sense when we think about the blood pressure stuff and pregnancy and yep. sustain the placenta. Um, so, you know, it was something that we did look for. You know, when you look for things, of course, we looked at many other genes and many other things, but obviously he'd picked that up. I then worked with her through the research sense, going through the diet, talked to her about it and not realized how she had absorbed that. So when I spoke with her, I just said to her, you know, yes, this influences folate metabolism and yes, folate is absolutely essential for pregnancy, you know, healthy fetal development, but this was not the only cause and lots of people, this actual, this variation that we're talking about, the 677 is very common, as you said. And if you did need to supplement, it wouldn't have continued to be passed down over time because it's extremely common up to about half of people, depending on, you know, where they are and ethnicity mm. population, but up to about 50% potentially have at least one of these SNPs. They have a slightly slower MTHFR. So I was able to help her understand that it wasn't a mutation that, you know, was a cause. And then from that moment onwards, we spoke to the group. We said, we're going to change our language and talk about, you know, genetic variations. And um, right. yeah, so that's one thing when I am doing a lot of the teaching around nutrigenomics, I really emphasize that we need to be cautious with our language because people don't, and even me too, who gets excited and I talk and I start sharing everything and you think you're being helpful but this could be, you know, interpreted incorrectly. And the reality is when we do this type of testing, we actually want to empower people. Hey, we know you need a bit more folate. Let's talk about your diet. Let's get it in. Do you need a supplement because of this, that, or the other? Because as much as I'm food first, and we're going to get to the whole food challenge, because I know that food is medicine. It's helped me recover. It's part of, it's a main part of what I do with, with patients and clients to help them get well. 
But at times you do need to supplement because, you know, you, you want to get a powerful effect or someone might be deficient, you know, do a lot of testing and you're looking for nutrient deficiencies or you can get that information through understanding their diet or if they've got digestive issues and not absorbing. Lovely. Uh, can you take us through some of the other genetic influences um, with regards to the importance of diet and health? It, mm. I know that's a big it's a big string. It's a long piece of string, but but do you have anything that might be more specific? Let's say let's say um, cardiovascular disease, diabetes. There you go. Mm -hmm. There's two huge mm -hmm. issues uh, facing the Australian population, indeed around the world. What do we have to take note of in genetics here? Mm -hmm. So we've obviously mentioned, you know, methylation, MTHFR, what methylation does, and just before I answer that, know that when you're looking at DNA testing, you can get a bit of information around what we call micronutrients. So like the folate, the vitamin D, vitamin A, et cetera. Yep. But we can also look at genes that are involved in, you know, pathways that we know, we know affect blood glucose or lipid levels or metabolic outcomes. So if we're thinking about, you know, carbohydrates, because I do talk to people about tweaking their diet a little bit based on their genes. There's no sort of such DNA diet, but we can influence. And I think it's almost crazy not to use your genetics. If you have this information that you wouldn't try to use that to tailor the ideal diet for you, because from a type two diabetes perspective, you know, blood glucose and insulin, some of us will have genetic variations that mean we are more likely to have issues around blood glucose regulation. So if I was just to reel off two, one of the first ones I'm thinking of is SLC. It's um, oh three oh eight eight. Is that it? Goodness, I hope I'm right. But it's a zinc transporter. I'm sure I'm right there. But um, this zinc transporter actually transports zinc to the pancreas, and a lot of people right. talk about it with zinc in general. But it's actually yeah. it's a transporter directly to the pancreas. So. It's more to do with insulin because zinc is needed to produce insulin. So this particular zinc transporter transports the zinc and then help that helps with insulin. So if you have a SNP here and then that's influencing the ability to get zinc to the pancreas, that can then affect, you know, insulin and has been, it's one, I wouldn't say it's a strong predictor, maybe not as say strong as something like APOE with Alzheimer's dementia, but that's a huge risk factor. Mm, but mm. It's been shown to be closely correlated um, with type 2 diabetes. And there are other SNPs too that increase risk of type 2 diabetes. So if you have these genes and you're having a high carbohydrate diet, but genetically you don't tolerate these carbs so well, that's, that's not one of your strong points is regulating your blood glucose levels then you're putting yourself at risk of something like type 2 diabetes because your body's finding it hard to get to that place of homeostasis. That's when you start to get out of balance yeah. and things start to go wrong. Can can I ask you, Denise, about genetic testing versus normal pathology testing? Because I sort of I keep going round and round, mm. which one's first, the chicken or the egg? Mm. Are you guided by standard pathology tests to say, for instance, let's say somebody has an increased um, total to HDL ratio, they have increased cardiovascular risk profile. Do you then say, okay, we have a known issue here. 
let's go and see what genes you have, what we can influence? Or do you say, let's see what your genetic makeup is. Perhaps that can point out something that might not even be showing yet. You know, you've got that that's known, but there, mm. there could be this whole other meadow of things that isn't known that genetics, genetic testing can say, hey, listen, you might be running into this in 10, 20 years. Yes. So without a doubt, the blood testing and other pathology and functional testing is really important because genetics is really about, you know, risk. You know, you might need, you know, more vitamin D or even if you've got MTHFR, we don't know if you are going to actually be deficient in folate or have high homocysteine. We don't know that it depends on obviously your diet and things like that. So when we're talking about these cardiovascular risk markers, if someone came to me and said, hey, I've got, you know, really high LDL, I've, you know, I've got issues around my lipids, cardiovascular, I would jump to genetics, but obviously I'm a geneticist. <laughs> so, but I would look at genetics, but I would not just focus on genes associated with lipid metabolism. I would just because of my history with my mum with Alzheimer's, I've got APOE4. I would go straight to APOE4 if that patient wanted that information, because that's a strong risk factor for cardiovascular LDL and and I feel like it's actually part of my life purpose is to help educate people, not just about fertility and miscarriage and how much we can do to improve, you know, preconception health and, and pregnancy, which by the way, leads into long-term health of that child because you're setting up good epigenetics. Absolutely. The other end, yeah, the other end of the spectrum, I have a, you know, huge personal interest in trying to help educate people for, you know, healthy aging and reducing risk of, of Alzheimer's dementia. So I, I personally gravitate towards, towards those genes, but I'd never just focused on those. And by the way, for those listeners, if you're thinking what the heck is APOE, it's a, a lipid transporter. It gets fats to the brain and um, people that have a certain variation tend to have higher LDL genetically, that that's a risk factor. But I would still look around and go, well, what's going on with inflammation? You know, what's going on with your TNF alpha, tumor necrosis factor alpha? That's a big player in the inflammatory process and linked with lots of, you know, autoimmune inflammatory things. I'd go, what's going on in methylation? Because yeah. homocysteine can affect the blood vessels. What's going on over here, even in detox? Because we know that exposure to certain chemicals and toxins increases cardiovascular disease. So I'd never just go, let's look at these genes. Let's look at your overall picture because this might tell us, even though you think your issue is fats, it might actually be a different metabolic pathway that we want to go in and support to help your body get back to that place of balance, that homeostasis, so that things can start to kick in and go, you know what, this is what we need because your body wants to heal. You're constantly... yeah you know, it's not a stagnant thing. You get a diagnosis and that's it. You're sick, sick forever. It's crazy to think that. I mean, when I got my autoimmune disease and they said, that's it, thyroid out, medication forever. We can't really tell you why. Da, 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 da. And you're like, no, 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 hang on. Hang on. I'm a geneticist. I've studied epigenetics. We Different genes are turning on all the time. Our body's very dynamic. It, I have to put different things in and different things will happen. How do you, how do you, so yeah, I guess with, with my background, I am all about looking at that individual and sort of the big picture rather than yeah. just a few genes, even if even if you're being pointed towards that. The pathology is important, but still look broadly. It's so refreshing to hear you say that because talking about APOE, um, which, by the way, I still get a little bit confused about how I should say it. Is it APOE3 slash E4, APOE4 slash E4? Is that 
the vernacular that we should be using? Yes. Just quickly. It's interesting because you start reading published medical papers by experts. Some will say APOE and just have four and some will say APOE like with me and then have a little E. It's 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 represented different differently throughout the literature. So you're not confused because there's something wrong with you. It's just represented differently in the literature. Well, I, I am confused because there's something wrong with me. But yeah, no, I just say APOE and then I say two, three, or four, whatever. Yeah. There, yeah. It feels it feels unusual. To say APOEE, <clears throat> which yeah. also but, doesn't really make sense. <laughs> but but even with APOE, there's so many influencers on the APOE. There's so much to do with this. It's not just that for Alzheimer's. This is my concern about, you know, what a certain actor who shall remain nameless, but, uh, you know, why he's taken some time off. And I was going, whoa, there's a whole other picture there. I think if you're just doing it because of this, you're missing the whole sort of play. Yes, exactly. And the beauty about genetics is that we do get lots of information and you're starting to understand yourself a little bit more. I mean, I explain it to people like, that's your instruction manual. You were born with a guidebook. Some people are like, oh, my God, I've got no idea what diet I should eat. Da, da, da. It's like, actually, you have this DNA, this instructions inside you. Now, I understand that it, we can't tap into that. And even if you do genetic testing, it doesn't tell you everything. We, we know a lot, but we don't know everything. And then there's the added layer of complexity with epigenetics, because even if you do know all your genes, we know which we're going to get to, you know, how much food and stress and exposures, you know, influences gene expression. Mm. So there's a few things you need that need to come into play, but you can't deny the influence that the genes have. And even if you're someone that hasn't done genetic testing, just have a really hard look at your family history. Is there lots of type 2 diabetes? It's likely that you might have some of those genes that means that you don't metabolize, you know, carbohydrates as efficiently you can't balance your blood sugars as well as, you know, some someone else. Or if you've got a really strong family history of, you know, a particular condition, well, then you should think about well, what can I do from a lifestyle perspective? And often, as much as I don't want to make it sound too simple, but the reality is it comes back to a lot of the same things. Improve your diet, you know, get exercising, get some good sleep, you know, try to manage your stress. It, it doesn't really matter. Sun. Yeah, you know, vitamin D. But I guess the difference with what, you know, we do in the integrative medicine space too is then we try to tweak it a little bit or at least help you prioritise because sometimes, you know, I've got all the knowledge in the world, but it doesn't mean that I can put all of these things in place all of the time because it's a lot of effort to yeah. have everything aligned. So it's like, where should I focus? Where should I focus to really improve my health to help me, you know, move the needle? Do you think we'll get to the stage where we've got our our genetic information at the end, we rely on pathology to say, have we got a pathological condition? Have we got a pathological process going on that we can measure? There's limitations. But do you think we'll get to the stage, tell, please tell me if there's any evidence for this, where we can test maybe, you know, in this age of AI, we'll be able to test not just one or a few groups of genetic SNPs, but a whole concert. In fact, a whole symphony over time not just in one point, but over time, affecting epigenetics, um, gene switching processes to say, yes, that diet is changing that process. You will end up there, over there in a healthful, um, in a health respect. Do you think we're uh, getting to that age? Oh, for sure. So there, 
the, you know, there's things called microarrays. So even when I was doing, you know, research, so you're going back, you know, 10 years. So 2012, I moved from, um, so actually getting older now, 12 years in research, 12 years in here, but, uh, but you know, there are things called microarrays and I'm sure there's, you know, other things too, but, you know, you can actually look at gene expression. So you can do things and actually look at gene expression. Now that there, I don't know any microarrays that are commercial tests. A lot of these things are still in a research perspective, but even if we think about epigenetics up until recently, that was limited to research, research. hospitals, universities, anything. Whereas now we do have a commercial test and, you know, that, this will be a different podcast because I could go on for another hour, but last year I did run a healthy aging study. So last year we didn't run the whole food challenge, which is about to come up in, in a few weeks. We ran it in 2021, 2022. But last year I did this healthy aging study about reversing biological age because there is now a commercial test to look and measure epigenetics, those methyl groups sitting on the DNA. And we know that the patterns link very tightly with biological age. So it doesn't matter what your chronological age is. Some of us are older or younger. Yep. Did you not know I did that? No. Oh, that's another podcast because I will go on and on. Oh, my God. I reversed my biological age by three years and I did not have the best results. There were some people that just had phenomenal changes in in Wow. A, yeah, yeah, it's amazing. That was all through epigenetic, mainly through we had some supplements, diet and lifestyle, but diet again really Major. with the principles of what I've got from the whole whole food challenge and I guess just to step back and talk about the whole food challenge as well, that actually came about because I ran a reversing autoimmune disease um, program yep. based off, off my recovery. And I probably won't do it again. It was 12 months. It was great. People had some good results, but it was too, I just went in a million miles an hour, too much information, overwhelming. But for one month, we just focused on diet and it was the thing that people were most interested in. We got the most benefit we I wanted everyone to start with sleep and stress and you know they kind of did but the diet is what grabbed the group and where they made big changes and where I saw big shifts so I took that month from the thyroid program and then developed this whole food challenge this is a standalone short program where you just come in and learn about food and you know removing some of the processed foods possibly some of the inflammatory putting it back in and yeah yep. that's that's where that came about but but it's tailored to each person's individual test results. Is that correct? So when I did the autoimmune, which was a quite a high ticket expensive program, they did do genetic testing, but the whole food challenge is actually relatively, it's really affordable. It's just right. a group program. If you've got genetics, we have, you know, group coaching, you know, we can talk about that, but it's a group program that's focused just on diet um, and yes, I can't help it. I talk a bit about genetics and cellular health and biochemistry, but it's really about the food and how the food's interacting with your DNA. You know, how think about, you know, blueberries, they're antioxidants because they go in and change acetylation. That's another, not just methylation on the DNA, mm -hmm. but acetylation. Curcumin, you know, affecting methylation. A lot of these things that are even supplements often are having epigenetic uh, influences mm -hmm. so that they act as an anti-inflammatory and antioxidant. And a lot of the time, these things are coming from food. So we're teaching people about, you know, gut health, prebiotics, probiotics, all that stuff. You know, I, I live for the day that we can actually have those tests 
at our disposal so that we can say, can we get away with doing it just with diet, which should be always be our foundation? Can we use diet? Do we perhaps need to jump up to nutraceutical foods, if you like, functional foods? Mm. Do you indeed, for your particular case, need a supplement? You know, to have that stratification of need and having a basis to say, yes, that's effective. I live for that day. That'd be great. It'd be awesome. Well, I have I have to be honest with the whole food challenge. Yes, it's a standalone program, but people do have the option. So I'm not taking you know, clients and patients at the moment, but there is the, if you've done that foundation work, you already know about the diet. If people want to have an add-on, because obviously genetic testing comes at a cost. And whereas mm. this is a, you know, relatively... We, we want to make it easy for everyone to get in and improve their diet. But if people do want to do an add-on and do genetic testing, they can then, you know, personalise things. And if people where budget's not an issue, they can then go and do biological ageing testing and a lot of the stuff that we even had in the thyroid program. The, the thing that is the limiting factor in a lot of this comes down to the cost because although yeah. I love genetic testing, love the epigenetics, all the functional testing, these things aren't covered by Medicare. Mm. People need yeah, to be right. able to be in a position to do so. But believe me, <laughs> that is it, it is a stepwise thing because it's like, well, actually, I need more and I'm in a position to do that. Great. Let's continue <laughs> on. So, <laughs> well, so, so you've mentioned food and, and we've spoken about a couple of diseases, cardiovascular disease, uh, uh, diabetes, type 2 diabetes, but you've got so many other metabolic issues. One of the overarching issues to do with that is weight. Mm. So are, are there, is there any, is are there any um, genetic genomic information with a strong link to weight control? Well, it's interesting you say that, um, particularly talking about, you know, weight and the whole food challenge. I have to be honest, most people that sign up say they want to lose weight and that's great. I'm not going to lie. I'm doing it myself and I want to drop a few kilos, but it's obviously a lot more than than weight. It's really about long-term health. But the reality is genetics do have an influence. That would probably be the right word. You know, there is an influence. And actually, I have a few of those SNPs, one of them being FTO, the fat mass and obesity gene. So we're very good at storing fat. You know, we, 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 and as from an evolutionary perspective, when we're talking about evolution and adaptation, highly beneficial that you can store fat because often there were times when there wasn't so much food. Unfortunately, in 2024, we, well, not unfortunately, fortunately we got plenty of food, but it comes with a new challenge yeah. because some of us um, are more inclined to put on weight. It doesn't mean you can't lose weight though. So I think FTO at one point was thought to be, one of the strongest genetic predictors of weight. We know it. there's an it's polygenic, meaning there's lots of different SNPs involved, but FTO does come up consistently. But I think we've realized over time, it probably doesn't have such a big influence, not on its own anyway. But with FTO people, um, and I know this firsthand and working with so many people too, and we've got good research studies on this, when we have a slightly higher protein diet, we do lose weight more efficiently and actually a little bit quicker when they've done randomized control trials and comparing people with FTO and a higher protein diet, not FTO, high protein diet, FTO people tend to lose a bit more weight with a higher protein diet. So right. it does not mean you can't lose weight. It just means that 
Overall studies show we're inclined to have a slightly higher BMI. We're, we're efficient at putting on fat. And then there's other SNPs, MC4R, a few others that are linked with snacking and eating behavior. And uh, you might have heard about the AMI-1 where we're looking at copy number variation um, and, and carbohydrate intake. So there's a few SNPs, but the reality is even if you've got them, you still can manage your weight but yeah. you may be someone that actually, you know, particularly with, you know, FDO people too as well, because we've got quite a few studies on that. These people can't really get away with not exercising. If you genuinely want to have, you know, a, a more leaner body composition with less of that adipose and fat tissue, then you're going to have to exercise possibly mm. more regularly than someone else. And, you, and your diet needs to be tweaked a little to have that particular body composition. So there are slight changes that you can make, but it definitely doesn't mean that you will be overweight. Gotcha. Um, and I love the word exercise too. It doesn't necessarily mean that isometric, isotonic sort of versus thing. It can be movement. Yes. You know, dan dancing, for instance, no matter how bad. <laughs> you know, dancing's great. Dancing dance, has got movement in three D. The brain you know? dancing, yeah. you know, dancing can help reduce you know early stage cognitive decline. You know, because you're actually having to think and move parts of your body. When you start doing exercise, you know, similar to that, where you're moving different body parts, even something like dancing too often is with a partner. The social interaction as well. Like there can be so much more to movement. Like you know, going out and, and doing these things with a group of people, you know, connecting, so many benefits. You mentioned, or I mentioned, wheat, milk. Mm. We've spoken about that. Have we got any any way that we can help people discover or uh, realise and maybe modify their diet with regards to common food sensitivities? Wheat and milk are the two biggest ones blamed, but mm. other ones? Yeah, and I think that is, depending on the person that comes to see me, sometimes people come to see me just to tweak their diet. Others, it's more sort of complicated health stuff. But when it comes to tweaking their diet, I actually do go straight to some of those easy ones around, you know, lactose and dairy. Are they likely to have sensitivities? The other one is the HLAs with gluten sensitivity. Yeah. So personally, I have the HLA genotype, 2.5, 2.2, which is linked with celiac disease or gluten sensitivity. I don't have celiac, but I firsthand have seen, you know, an improvement in my autoimmune when I dropped gluten. Not the first time, by the way. I have to say the first time I recovered from my autoimmune thyroid, I almost wore like a badge of honor. Like I did not drop gluten because I love food. I'm a foodie. So you know, I, I, even though I ate really well, I still did have some gluten, definitely a lower gluten diet. So I was like, well, I've recovered from thyroid. My antibodies are down because we do have some studies to show that for thyroid, you know, gluten, once you drop it, can reduce, um, you know, thyroid antibodies because there's a yep. crossover. And the reason I say that is because those same SNPs that are linked with celiac disease are also linked with other autoimmune diseases. There's a little bit of a crossover. So if we do see these SNPs, I can then educate people and inform them that they have a genetic risk. It doesn't mean they will become celiac disease, doesn't mean they will become gluten sensitive, but there is the potential. They've got some genes that mean they could become more reactive and then they can then make an informed decision, which of course I help with at, you know, I do suggest going on a low gluten diet for those people, or if they are in an autoimmune flare, you know, coming off gluten because 
that's pointing you towards that because not everyone wants to change their diet and not everyone you know these things can be difficult as well when you start mm. removing big food groups so if you've got some information you can say well actually this is likely to be important for me so i when i had my flare after my second child i did have a bit of a flare no surprise actually that's when you knew me and i'm running around and traveling and coming off stage, speaking to breastfeed and thinking I'm superwoman and just doing too many things. And now I look back and think, no wonder my thyroid, you know, let me know it wasn't happy again and not sleeping much, but I also developed psoriasis. So this time, not only did I have graves and, you know, antibodies increasing, I got severe psoriasis and I'm not saying it was only gluten, but the final straw to to clear it was gluten. And actually now if my hands start getting itchy, because I started with these little white dots and then my my skin just started peeling. I lost all their ability to be sort of waterproof and it yeah, became, couldn't use my hands. It was pretty serious. Wow. wow. Yeah. Yeah. It, I had to wear gloves. I couldn't wash my hair, couldn't wash my daughter's hair. Yeah. <laughs> and then the fine, I thought, oh, it's probably dairy because I do a lot with food and, you know, healing with food. I believe food is medicine. It's made a huge difference in my life. And I understand how food does interact with our genetics and, you know, cellular health. So I thought, oh, it's probably dairy because I was having a lot more dairy, you know, after the pregnancy I was craving. And I was like, oh, dairy, you know, and I had a little few little pimples. I was like, yeah, skin stuff. I'm drinking lots more. I don't usually drink a lot of milk just because I don't like it. But I cut out the dairy and it just didn't make a difference. And mm. um, the gluten just made a huge, huge difference. So did you decide to do that test then or did you already have that information? So I actually, believe it or not, didn't get my HLA. So even though I'd done genetic testing, knew my methylation stuff, knew vitamin D, I'd done a few things in the hospital. So when I was working in a research sense, we didn't look at the HLAs. We looked at it. We had a hundred SNP chip in the end, but we didn't have HLAs, even though we actually did a lot with immune and interleukins mm. and growth factors. Um, I didn't find out I had the HLAs until after. And actually that is what triggered me to do more DNA testing because it, it's now, you know, really common and most tests actually have that. So I ended up doing further testing and um, because even though I'd done, if I was just to reel off a few of the Australian companies, they didn't have the HLAs at that time either. So, but now most of them, most of them do. So yeah, I found right. out I had the HLAs and I thought I possibly would be gluten-free forever, but I'll be completely honest. I'm not out here to pretend I'm <laughs> that I'm doing that because I'm not, but I'm on a low gluten diet. And what I do love about the whole food challenge is we remove gluten for two weeks see how we feel. And I always feel great. So I'll probably be gluten-free for a while after that, but it does creep back in. I've got to tell people I love food. I love having a good time, but hell yeah, I make, yeah, I make better choices and I do eat well most of the time. And yeah. I, you know, my daughter's seven now, I haven't had any autoimmune stuff for, you know, six years. So. Yeah. yeah. Um, have you ever relied on these uh, uh, proteolytic enzymes that are around? I think they're from papaya, caracane. I think that's it. The, to break down gluten. Mm. I haven't, but probably out of um, date now, but for a while there, after finding that out, I did carry them around because I really was concerned. I thought if that psoriasis comes back, those little scratchy pimples, yep. um, 
mind you, I can tell, and it's obviously more than gluten too, just when I'm under high stress or not sleeping as well, I do kind of get itchy hands. And that's when I just go, okay, we need to step it up because once you had these things, I'm now predisposed. My body's been there, even though I've come back to health and wellness, I do have to take a bit of extra care. And my personality, as you know, is go, go, go. And that's my little warning sign. Okay, Denise, we're going a bit far here. <laughs> Eddie Eddie Enver tells me about this and he says it's the body whispering to you. I love the way he talks. Um, it's true. Yeah. And once you learn yeah. these signs and symptoms and you start, because sometimes we ignore, how long do you ignore things? Even me, I look back and go, how did I let the psoriasis? Yeah. So, but I also... I think we also need to respect, you know, mainstream medicine sometimes and sometimes in our field because the doctor tried to give me cortisone and I was like, oh, I'm not having that. I will cut dairy and, you know, dairy did nothing. And I kept thinking, oh, it'll be fine when my daughter sleeps through the night, you know, I just lack of sleep and making all these excuses. And then over the months, it just became, you know, severe. Sometimes you need rescue. Yeah. And what I should have done looking back would say, great, you've got a medicine that can help me right now because I'm a busy mom and I'm not sleeping and I don't know what the cause of this is. I mean, I may or may not have worked out the gluten. I still probably would have because I don't wouldn't have been on cortisone forever. But I think sometimes in this integrative space, it's almost silly not to utilize things that can help you in the moment. And then you get to dig a little deeper and try to yes. deal with those underlying causes. Yes. Yes. The danger, of course, is that some people will just say, that relieved my symptoms. I'm sticking with it. And you go, oh, well, that's your journey. Yes. <laughs> that's yeah. okay. You stay on the medicine. For those people that don't want to stay on that medicine all the time, then there's another um, another chapter that you can explore. Uh, Denise, just before we sort of finish for the day, we've spoken about food sensitivities. We've spoken about the whole food challenge. You need to take us through because you've got yeah. something special lined up for people who want to access that, haven't you? Yes. And I hope that people listen to this relatively soon because it's just around the corner. So on the 29th of January, and if you miss it, there'll there'll be a wait list. We might run it again at the end of the year or definitely next year, but it is a whole food challenge where we really educate people around food as well. So yes, there's action steps, but there's weekly group coaching with me. We've got an amazing, amazing naturopath health coach who supports people in the group as well. Um, There's recipes. If people want you know, actual meal plans, they're there, but that's not actually what I encourage. I encourage people to make sort of small changes, take out sugar, try all these things. Most of us don't have time. Let's be realistic to follow these, you know, full on meal plans or to change things to that level. But there is recipes, there's there's resources to to let people know really the power of food. And as I said, we talk about chemicals and toxins in food. We give resources on um, you know, learning what to look for in foods, how to read labels, mm. you know, gut health, prebiotics, probiotics. So there's a lot of information. None of it is overwhelming. It's written in a way that is really user-friendly. We walk people through it. There's a topic kind of each week, lots of support. And really it's about helping people, I think, understand the power of food because often the biggest sort of barrier is is our mindset. Even if we know food's good, yes. we think, oh, I'll just have this, I'll have that. But I think when you do something like this, also we have had phenomenal results. You know, I've run this three times now 
know, people that completed everyone, every single person, a hundred percent said they've got more energy, you know, 80 something percent saying that, you know, they've got less digestive issues, 67% mm. or whatever. I just put a social post together. So I kind of know the stats. We were looking through it all saying they've got less, you know, less stress, people sleeping better, their skin's better. So I think when you start to one. see these symptoms or these th changes in, in yeah. what is really a relatively short amount of time, it helps people go, oh, you know what, this is actually working for me. And then if it's not, that's when you go, you know what, there's some, maybe there's an underlying, maybe there is an underlying thyroid issue or something else going on if, if you're not seeing those changes. And that's when you need to delve a little deeper. Yeah. Beautifully said. Uh, so I need to tell everybody that because this will be um, this will be in podcast land forever. So this is the 29th of January, 2024. It's now the 16th of January, 2024. You've only <laughs> got are... a couple of weeks yeah, to access this special, everyone. So yeah. I'm, I'm going to put this up probably without much editing. So because you and I will gas bag on forever. Denise yeah. Finesse, thank you so much, so, so much for taking us through your overwhelming mind, your overwhelming expertise in this area. Um, but you know what? Also your practical care because, you know, you're a mum, you're a wife, you you walk the talk, but you care for people and you have done for decades now with your research and now into clinical practice. I just I can't thank you enough for what you've done for people and to also bring the knowledge of uh, genetic testing and how it functions, how it can function ethically and well for people using whole food. And I wish you well. And I look forward to podcasting with you very soon in the future. Thank you. I really appreciate appreciate your time. And I would like to offer all of your listeners a 20% discount. So that'll be Nat Med, which is your, your podcast, Natural Medicine. So Nat Med Podcast 20, that will get you 20% off. And as I said, if you hear this later, I hope that there was a ton of information. It doesn't matter that you've missed the Whole Food Challenge or reach out to us and, you know, you can go on a wait list and we will talk about healthy aging next time, Andrew Whitfield Cook. <laughs> I've never called you that in my life. It's usually <laughs> off, but anyway, thanks, everyone. <laughs> thanks so much for taking us through today. And thank you for your company today. Remember, you can find all of the research papers. We'll put up a bundle of stuff in the show notes, and also we'll have it on natmedpartners.com.au in due course. Thanks so much for joining us today. See you soon.